0: Father Robert Daly is a Jesuit priest and professor emeritus at Boston College, where he taught for over forty-nine years. His work is focused primarily on the idea of sacrifice, uh, and first interested me uh, in its relationship to the French philosopher René Girard, who Daly studied, admired, and actually knew. In our correspondences back and forth leading up to our introduction, Daly warned me that, in his words, he was old and slow, which is fair. He was born in 1933, uh, and was 89 years old when we spoke just a few weeks ago. A mentor of mine once said that the greatest teachers are never done because once you're done you're finished. Well, Father Daly or Bob as he asked me to call him is far from done. I asked him some tough questions, questions I've thought not to ask other religious people, and he handled them with a sense of curiosity, grace, and humility that I deeply admire and hope to emulate or using a word I think he'd appreciate uh, imitate. Without further introduction, I present to you Father Bob Daly. Well, hello, Father Daly. So, so nice to see you. Thanks for uh, navigating Zoom with me.
1: Okay, let me get rid of this. Got it. Okay, here we are. Okay. Well, I'm sort of depending on you. Oh, let me turn those background lights off and see what whether that improves that uh, does that improve my face uh,
0: that looks great to me
1: yeah okay fine
0: well hello father Daly. so nice to meet you thank you for taking this time i really appreciate it
1: okay and you can call me bob if you're more if you're comfortable with that
0: awesome great to meet you bob
1: yeah so where are you are you zooming from boston uh, from where i am i'm i'm at uh, a resident now at uh Jesuit Health Center in Western Massachusetts. It's about a half hour's drive from west of the center of Boston.
0: OK, and how it far used, are you from? I'm sorry. It,
1: it used to be the Philosophate and Theologate, who I did my basic philosophy theology studies, hmm. three philosophy four theology. So it's a very familiar place when, to me. That's where I'm spending, presumably, the final years of my life.
0: So, So when was the last time you were there? Where? Where you are now. You said it's where you did the your last original time, studies?
1: Oh, well, I did my philosophy studies there in 1954 to 57. And then uh, from 60 to 64, my uh, basic theology before going to Europe for my uh, doctorate. Wow. And uh, so in between, well, Over the last say 15 or 20 years, I would normally come here to make my annual retreat. So the place is, uh, it's home to me. Some of my classmates did not have a happy time going through formation. And so they came here in their final days only unwillingly, but I didn't have that problem. I was happy while I was here and, and and, and was happy to come back here when it was time for me to move from, from an active position.
0: Awesome. So you're not far from Boston now, and you taught at Boston College for many years. Did, are you still Before, teaching there?
1: No, no. I'm, uh, I left there a little bit more than two years ago. I retired from full-time teaching in 2002, and from 2002 until 2020, I continued to live there as a, as a retired, but active scholar.
0: Wonderful. And you're, from, you're originally from the, the Boston area as well. I'm correct? originally
1: from West Quincy, which, which was a, a less than a one hour bus ride into Boston for Boston College High School. Mm-hmm. So I graduated from Boston College High School in 1950 at age 17 and that's when I entered the Jesuits. They they were accepting children in those days.
0: Yeah. What do you think now that they, what is the earliest they can be accepted now?
1: Well, it's still, you could still be accepted right after high school. Oh, really? But the average age of those coming in is now in mid-20s. It's become customary uh, uh, for people to, finished college education and maybe even have begun professional life before uh, joining the Jesuits. So the average entering age now is, is somewhere in the mid, early to mid-20s, mm. uh, quite different. In my time, most of us were entering right from high school or after a few years of college. We used to refer to someone who had graduated from college as an older man. And once we had someone join us who was 28 years old, and he wasn't an older man, we referred to him simply as an old man.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, since since we're on your biography, you join the Jesuits, you do your initial studies, and then you alluded to going to Europe. What did that entail?
1: Well, uh, the the basic training for a Jesuit is the for uh, after the preliminary and uh, a bachelor's education was to uh, get a licentiate that's an equivalent to a master's degree in philosophy and then uh, and that got finished in 1950 from 54 to 57 right here at western uh, when i did that and then for the next two years i taught uh, they called it regency so, uh, between philosophy and theology was customary for Jesuits in formation in between philosophy and then starting theology uh, to uh, teach for a few years or do do special studies. So for two years, I taught uh, uh, Latin and English and religion at Chevers Classical High School, a Jesuit high school in Portland, Maine. Mm. And while I was there, I also uh, uh, actually coached uh, football and track and did all sorts of other things as well as 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 well as as teaching was was ha- would have been happy to continue that life but then uh for my third year of regency before coming back to theology i was sent off to uh, do a master's degree in english literature in washington dc at catholic university of america in those days i was uh, expecting to specialize in english uh, literature studies. Uh, and then in 1960, having done that, uh, uh, specializing in uh, uh, medieval uh, Latin, medieval English and, and what but anyway, it was a very successful time. And then came back and and, and started out my basic theology for, for four years here at Weston. It was uh, a time when there was still we were still teaching in the old system of basically memorizing the the theses Mm -hmm. and uh, what have you. And for some people that stunted intellectual development because you could get by by memorizing the theses without having to understand, without really understanding them much. Uh, But fortunately in my, uh, uh, my work in English literature had already introduced me to literary theory, and uh, and uh, while I, I, while the year and two summers at Catholic University doing that uh, English degree, I also did a minor in medieval Latin studies with Martin R. P. Maguire, who was the general editor of the second edition of the new catholic encyclopedia Hmm. and he was a scholar to the tips of his fingers and i learned a lot about scholarly method uh, from him and he recognized right away that i was capable of learning things so he would lend me uh, he would assign me uh, a, a research task for writing papers and stuff that required me to go to the library of congress and use that and he would give me his library of congress card to go down to the Library of Congress because the Catholic University was at the northern edge of of the District of Columbia. So I'd take the, you know, the bus into, but anyway, uh, so when I came back to Weston to do my theology from 1960 to 64, I already knew what good theological method, what good method scholarly method and, and, and research uh, items was, was the faculty wasn't paying much attention to that. They were still most of them in that old mode. Fortunately, I had various things that protected me from the deleterious effects of that. So I had a happy four years, but I noticed that many of my uh, fellow students had, weren't protected from it. And uh, so when it came time from them, to you know, at the end of their lives, to need uh, the care, you know, end of life care, uh, would come here because this place had be, had, trans, had morphed into the health center. It was no longer the place where we came for our studies.
0: Mm-hmm. So,
1: uh, for some of them, it was an it was, and uh, continues to be an unhelp, unhelp, unha- unhappy move when they have to come here to a place where they suffered as students. Whereas for me, I wasn't suffering. What happened was that in the course of theology, despite getting singularly unimpressive grades in the central courses, they kept asking me if I wanted to switch to theology. And I didn't take them seriously because I wasn't getting you know, impressive grades and the people who went on to specialize in philosophy and theology were the ones who were getting uh, top grades. So but after repeated requests, I realized they were, they were serious. So once I started giving it serious thought I realized I could be I could be happy in my life specializing in theology just as easily as I could if I was specializing in English literature. So I switched then to uh, English literature and uh we had already since i was planning to do uh doctoral level work on uh yeah uh, on renaissance english literature which meant of course uh doing comparative work with the with with with, with the provencal literature and italian literature and french literature as well as english so to help me with that i it was uh, decided that I would do my final year of Jesuit training, which is a spiritual year uh, and usually add it on after having finished your formal studies. And uh, so I did that in Florence, Italy because I was already planning uh, well, that's where I was would have been would have gone to do that year and and doing it in Italy would help me you know pick up Italian that I would need for my so anyway, that's, uh, so that was one of the, there were various changes, uh, really changes in, in my academic life. That was maybe the first really significant one, switching from English literature to theology. And then while in, while, and, and then I was I was allowed, by way of exception, things were opening up at that time, to do my Doctoral level studies. And we we all used to do it as in a two year uh, program called a biennium at the Gregorian University you know, in, uh, in in Rome,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and it was mostly a sort of an upgraded level of the uh, memorized the theses sort of thing. And uh, but I was allowed to find another place and. Uh, just before coming to uh, uh, Europe to do that year in Florence, Italy, I wrote to 22 Catholic faculties uh, in Europe, in Italy, France, Germany, Netherlands, England, France. Uh, And to my astonishment, at the end of the summer, all 22 had answered and uh, I had offers to come and do my uh, doctoral work uh, in, in all of them. And although in some of them, I wouldn't have been able to do the doctoral work because they were uh, North German reformed and, and doing uh, doctoral work required uh, membership in the church and the profession mm-hmm. of faith and that particular evangelical church. So they said, you could be welcome to come as a scholar, but you probably wouldn't want to get into the degree program because of that requirement. But uh, Oscar Kuhlmann in Basel and Rudolf Schnakenburg in, uh, in, in Würzburg and Johannes Betz in Mainz. And I chose uh, uh, were the most interesting positive answers. And I chose Betz because in theology, one of the few Jesuits teachers there who was not a slave to that memorize the thesis thing, Father Ed Kilmartin, I'm not sure whether you've ever heard of his name, but uh, uh, What
0: was 30, the first name? I heard Martin, I'm sorry.
1: Edward Kilmartin. Mm. Uh, 30 or 40 years ago, he was recognized as one of the two or three or four leading Catholic scholars on the issue of the Eucharist and sacraments. Mm. And But he had already introduced me to the work of Johannes Betts, uh, which was to do uh, systematic theology uh, or doctrinal theology, but very rigorously from its biblical and patristic early church uh, background. And uh, so having been, inter- anyway, that's why I chose to go and do my, uh, do my studies you know, with him. And while there in Mainz, after uh, after three semesters, he moved to Wurzburg, which mm-hmm. is also where Rudolf Snarkenborg was. And Rudolf Snarkenborg was at the time the leading uh, European Catholic scholar in New Testament. He had a, a, a doctoral seminar with about 25 people in it. And by quirk of good luck without going into today's, I, I managed to get, on, to, to get to meet him. And uh, he allowed me to be an active participant in his uh, New Testament doctoral seminar while doing my doctorate in systematic theology with Johannes Bett. So I was, I, I was in effect in two active and two doctoral seminars, one in New Testament and the other in my own field in uh, doctrinal theology. Uh, based on biblical and patristic background. And things went on from there. Then came back to Boston College in 1971, and had been there, was there for a total of 49 and a half years, including the time that I was there as a retired scholar. Uh, Did a lot of teaching, uh, but not as much as most people would at that time, because for 15 of those years, I was the chair of the theology department, which was a very large department and and growing and developing at that time, and so the administrative work uh, meant I couldn't teach as much as as I normally would. But anyway, uh, in the course of uh, oh, in the course of say six or seven years of my teaching, I almost by accident discovered that the uh, liturgical scholars were the ones interested in my work on sacrifice. Hmm. It wasn't the systematic theologians, but but rather the liturgical scholars. And they invited me to come to their annual meeting, the meeting of the North American Academy of Liturgy, to talk to them about sacrifice. And so I I did and discovered, well, these are the people who were, you know, Catholics and Protestants, you know, both all, all of them interested in my work and wanting to, wanting to talk about it. And so I said, well, I guess I'll have to uh, join them. And so I became a liturgical scholar, at uh, least specializing in uh, the Eucharist and using my research that I already was well into and in sacrifice at that time, because that happened uh, by the time, more or less about the time that uh, my first two books on sacrifice were being published and so anyway that's basically how my academic life went it was uh, uh, I I saw a lot of the world because I was a a, a member of uh, four or five different uh, academic groups two of them liturgical one of them ecumenical another just a Jesuit ecumenical uh, and uh, well anyway uh, and, and then the René Girard group as well and mm-hmm. they would meet you know at different places around the world so we got to see much of the world just simply by go, by attending the conferences that uh, these uh, only there's only uh, only a couple of them were just just north American most of them were no, no were, were international because of uh, either being jesuit or uh, whatever, But anyway, that's a sort of a quick rundown of my life.
0: I appreciate that overview. <clears throat> and I'm glad you mentioned your work on sacrifice because I, I think that um, was probably the first thing that really attracted me to reaching out to you. I, a couple of years ago, did an independent study just one summer read through a bunch of Gerard's work, René mm-hmm. Gerard's work, and uh, as you could imagine doing that on your own I became quite confused. So yeah. So so I've been sort of poking around ever since. And it got me to talking to to a bunch of colleagues of mine and then a bunch of biblical scholars. And when I was looking into that, I I saw that you were an expert on sacrifice. So I reached out to you. I'm I'm interested if there's a genesis before we move maybe to Gerard at some point. I'm interested if there's I'm interested if there's a genesis to your interest in sacrifice specifically.
1: Well It was providentially accidental.
0: Hmm.
1: In the first, at the beginning of my doctoral studies, this would have been in the fall of 1960, 1965, the fall of 1965, beginning my doctoral studies in Mainz, I thought I was, and I thought that I had an agreement with my uh, doctoral director, Johannes Betz, to be uh, working towards uh, studying what happened to the the theology of suffering, uh, uh, the theology and spirituality of suffering uh, between St. Paul, where it was considerably developed in in his letters, and uh, the the Golden Age uh, uh, theologians of the 4th, 5th, and fourth and fifth centuries Uh, in between there didn't seem to be much development of that theme and uh after a couple of months of basic work of general background work in that area to prepare me for that in conversation with my uh, director johannes Betz, i discovered that he thought i was working on sacrifice (laughs) and uh and specifically and and that and that meant that I would have to uh, pay attention, careful attention to origin of Alexandria as a, as a central figure. And he was all enthusiastic about that. First, I didn't say anything when I am thinking to myself, you know, first, uh, I, my father was in politics and I learned to have uh, a, a political sense about how to deal with you know, sudden things like this. And so thinking about it he says, well, uh, all my preparatory work would be just as good for uh, going, doing, a th- studying the, the origins of the development of sacrifice, uh, of, the, of the development of the origins of, of the theology of sacrifice. <laughs> uh, so uh, I said, well, I could be just as happy doing that as this, uh, my, my own, for what I thought I was doing on the theology of suffering. So I said, okay, that's what I'll be doing. So that's how that, literally, it was that accidental. Hmm. And so that worked out very, very nicely. (coughs) In the course of the first two years of my doctoral studies, uh, I wasn't required to do much coursework, so I was attending, uh, (coughs) I was sitting in on uh, professors' courses so that uh, Would be familiar with each other when it came time for the examination. Uh, the uh, after two years of preliminary work of gathering the texts of origin, where origin did speak about sacrifice quite a bit, <clears throat> and uh, and also gathering what I could about the secondary literature on the theme of the uh, sacrifice in the New Testament or in the Bible and in the early church, uh, I w- was ready to say, well, this should prepare me now to start, start working up a thesis. And uh, so, but I realized that by that time, see, part of my background had been while I was here in theology, 1960 to 64, I was a member of the team, mostly of fellow students, but led by the uh, faculty, of course, of the book, the periodical New Testament Abstracts. And uh, so I worked closely with that for uh, most of the four years that I was here, you know, doing my basic theology. And uh, for, a, for a while, I was basically in charge of the section called Books and Opinions. That is, the professor in charge, who was the editor, uh, would identify the 40 or 45 most important books, book reviews that had appeared in New Testament studies. Mm. And my job was to uh, get a a 200 word abstract that summarized a 100 to 200 word abstract summarizing that book review and I found out that and not many people were able to do that and I ended up writing most of them myself but, (laughs) uh, but, but, but I'd learned in the course of doing that I got a real sense of what New Testament studies was and uh, so that uh, when it came time for my director to move from Mainz to Würzburg, where Rudolf Schnakenberg also was, who was the leading scholar in New Testament studies, that's what gave me my entry you know, to him and, uh, and, and, and enabled me to uh, specialize at the doctoral level and the doctoral seminar level, both in New Testament and in uh, systematic theology, in my theology of sacrifice. So that's how that providentially, you know, came together and, and worked nicely. So uh, after my switch to liturgical studies, it was only uh, sort of accidental too that I got introduced to René Girard uh, while I was from 1967-78, that uh, was my first sabbatical year. And I spent that at uh, St. organ which is a philosophy theology seminar uh, for Jesuits and for diocesan priests as well, a rather sizable uh, uh, thing. thing. Uh, and it, it was an excellent faculty with a superb library. And went, and uh, so I sort of, it, it became over the years my second home, my four or five sabbatical years over the course of my of my active life. They were all spent at at Frankfurt in St. K. Oregon, hmm. so that uh, I had become, no, German had become a second language me, almost like a mother tongue. No, I could function happily in it, you know, well, no. Uh, uh. So, uh, but there Norbert Lofink was an Old Testament scholar and he told me about this uh, work, uh, Do We Need Scapegoats by Raymond Schwager. And it was about, it was, uh, Raymond Schwager was uh, 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 a Swiss, well, he was a Jesuit. I think he was probably Swiss, native Swiss, but uh, teaching at uh, Innsbruck. And it, it basically it was intended to be an introduction to, uh, uh the, uh, uh to, to Raymond Schwager using. The new testament you know basically or the, or the bible as, as 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 the basis and uh so it ended up well what happened was i was asked to vet the english translation of that done by maria assad who is an american scholar who was ex- an excellent translator but wasn't a theologian and uh, so she was translating this basically you know theoretical or theological work uh, and it was kind of a mess because she didn't know that you know some of the terms she was using were, were specific theological terms with a history of meaning and you couldn't treat them as uh, as you would you know a literary source you had to Use those words only in those meanings, or otherwise it would be confusing to the readers. It would would have been a, so the, the the book would have been a disaster if it got published that way because uh, it 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 it, uh, uh, it it would have turned off scholars. It would have been a confusing mess. So I went through it very very carefully, uh, <clears throat> and when she got my when she got her manuscript back from me and found out that every page was filled with corrections, she said she was aghast. <laughs> and, uh, but then she looked carefully and, and, uh, and I explained to her what was going on. And she says, oh, yeah, okay. You can't use this word, uh, you know, and, and then use it synonym, synonyms, you know, for, uh, you know, for variety, because those synonyms have a different meaning, theologically. Mm-hmm. And so, so, so in the course of doing that close work, that's what introduced me to the work of René Girard and uh, from then on, I then became a member of that from, it was fairly early uh, <clears throat> that uh, the, 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 the group, the René Girard uh, group, uh, the Colloquium on Violence and Religion was had just recently been organized and was meeting every year. And I became a regular participant of that. And that's, that's how I got introduced in, into René Girard, sort of just, you know, as so many earlier developments in my academic life, sort of, you know, by accident, it just hmm. happened. And, and I recognized right away how important Girard was. Yeah.
0: Hmm. You, you said the Do We Need Scapegoats, it was by a Swiss Jesuit. Who, what was that name again?
1: Raymond Schwager, S-C-H-W-A-G-E-R. Do we need scapegoats? It's still one of the best introductions to uh, mimetic theory.
0: And remind me what year that was.
1: Oh, okay. Uh, This would have been in the 1970s. Uh,
0: uh, Well, I I don't know if it's super important that I know the date, but I'm curious what Gerard had written at that point.
1: Well, okay. What he had written at that point was uh, his basic fundamental work. Uh, uh,
0: was it the, uh, the viol- violence in the sacred? Is that the first one? Yeah,
1: violence in the sacred. Violence in the sacred. Okay. And that had not yet been translated. Mm-hmm. But Raymond Schwager had read that and he realized how important that was for theology. Uh, was was uh, Schwager, himself, I mean, uh, Gerard himself was not a theologian. He wasn't, you know, or, or, or pretending to be, uh, but uh, he, he immediately contacted Schwager, uh, uh Girard, and they hit it off right away. I'm not sh- sure what language they spoke in. It might well have been French, no, <clears throat> because I because he was uh, uh, Schwager himself was Swiss, uh, but in any case, uh, yes, I'm sure it would have been French. But anyway, they headed off. They became close friends and colleagues. So what was what was happening there was that, from fairly early on, from the early, early from the nineteen seventies onwards, uh, uh, Gerard was in contact with theologians and with the theological significance of his work, because uh, he began <clears throat> by having. Well, he developed his original idea of sacrifice from his uh, literary uh, works and, and, stu- and studies, and it, and it wasn't theological. And uh, so it was, a, in terms of Christian uh, uh, sensitivities, it was, a t- it was a totally negative, it was only the, uh, no, the bad aspects of sacrifice, the negative aspects of sacrifice. That he uh, that he thought sacrifice was, but he learned from uh, uh, Schwager and from his correspondence and and working with Schwager that uh, uh, there were uh, positive meanings of that, that uh, positive Christian meanings, as well as positive Jew- Jewish meanings, uh, that uh, w- w- were were very important, and so. Uh, the the if you will the theological significance of Raymond Schwager, I mean of uh, of Rene Girard, uh, was due largely, and that it worked out successfully largely to this uh, this friendship and arrangement that he had with uh, that Girard had with Raymond Schwager. Yeah. Uh,
0: Interesting.
1: Yeah. So, so- go ahead.
0: So you, in some ways, helped translate that introduction. Um, Do we need I, scape?
1: I, that's right. Do we need scapegoats? I I translated so the Do we need scapegoats? Is the English title of that uh, thing? And I, so it's a, it's a, it's it's well, it's a good translation because uh, Maria is you known as an excellent uh, uh, an excellent translator, and once uh, she saw what I was doing. That are, and that, and this, she she was uh, that, that it. Well, that the that the theology had words and concepts that were basically set, and uh, if you were going to translate something into English, you no, know, they had that you had to be aware of what those were. And so, anyway, <clears throat> that uh, so that's how that's really how, how that how that started. Yeah.
0: So so it starts there, and at some point I know you became really enthusiastic, so enthusiastic about his ideas that you joined, as you said, the Colloquium of, I think, Violence and... Colloquium religion. on
1: Violence and Religion, yes. and uh, What
0: does the interim look like? Did you start reading Girard at that point? Does he intersect with what you were writing and reading at that point? What does the interim look like?
1: I did some reading of Girard, but basically uh, a lot, uh, not a huge amount. Uh, but uh, be- because the uh, <clears throat> the in- the introduction to Girardian theory that uh, um, that Schwager did in that book uh, was very sound, uh, v- very solid. And then once I joined that group, uh, their basic operating language was English. And there were uh, some early scholars like Andrew McKenna and Hamilton Kelly. Uh, there was a whole group of uh, North American, later Australian, you know, uh, English speaking scholars who did a lot of writing and speaking. So my, my uh, I, I never became you know an expert in Gerard's writing itself but uh i, I recognized that his insights into uh the origins and development you know, of, of 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 sacrifice uh were key in, in, interestingly the uh the most an impressive number of what I would call the most gifted, theoretically gifted uh, scholars, theological scholars, on the issue of sacraments, uh, uh, had a great respect and reverence for Rene Girard. It, it, it was uh, so. So, what was going on? So, so now, Girard himself. Uh, when he finished Violence le Sacre in the early nineteen seventies, he he already had a sense that what he was discovering was a a, a biblical Christian Jewish understanding of, of sacrifice. And, and that it had a, a that it had a positive meaning as well as, as well as a negative meaning. It wasn't something that was just you no know, all, all bad and had to be, you know, Transcended and 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 got totally beyond. Uh, and uh, you know, for example, uh, one of the facts, for example, that that struck me right away, and and that uh, uh, that the the these uh, theologians themselves recognized is that uh, we have not. Developed, we or we had not developed a, a theory of sacrifice that explains its positive aspects, and uh, uh, and why does that need to be explained? Well, the fund it's, people generally recognize that the fundamental message of the New Testament, the fundamental message of Jesus, is nonviolent. Uh, and yet, violence is runs through the entire Bible in all sorts of ways, and and also and is not absent. You no, know, even from and, and the the language at least at least the language of violence is used by New Testament people and, and Christians to to express their spiritual understanding their their, their nonviolent. So, what's going on there? Uh, uh, no one could explain that hmm. the uh, the uh, uh, the Old Testament theology, the New Testament theologies you know it well is allegory and what and the spiritual meaning and what have you, but uh, that that to take seriously the fact that that violence runs through the thing that, that Girard's Gerard's general theory provided uh, a method and a matrix, a way of making making sense. Of all of this, and to come up with a with a positive theory, and not one that you have to explain by by a, a spiritualizing meaning or an allegorical uh, meaning, and, and et cetera. So uh, hmm. that's that's what struck me right from the from the outset. That uh, uh, with the help of, of Rene Girard, uh, we have now been able to. Uh, express a theology of sacrifice uh, that is positive. I mean, I mean that you know well if you've read you know, any of my works you've got a you've got a sense of what, what I've been trying to do that, do no no with, with that. Yeah. But that's 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 basically how that how that came about. Uh, the almost accidental getting acquainted with René Girard and uh, and recognizing right away with uh, with the help of Raman Schwager, uh, how important this could be for uh, uh, for for theology, yeah. and in and in my own book, Sacrifice Unveiled, towards the towards the end of that book, uh, I have a full chapter on uh, using uh, Girarati and mimetic theory as a as a, as a, as a matrix for understanding the, what we mean by christian sacrifice
0: hmm. one of the things that struck me when i was reading gerard was as you alluded to sort of this uh how he starts with this anthropological theory of sacrifice that's right and then, and then how it leads to this theological interpretation as he applies it to the the old yeah. and new testament what, what,
1: what, what was actually happening to him he was despite himself no he grew up you know no no traditionally culturally Catholic, but like most or many typical French intellectuals had become you know ah religious and what have you. what what was happening? He was discovering uh, religion. He was discovering uh, Christianity and 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 its Jewish background. and and, and, and by the time he had finished writing, Violence et le sacré. He, in the early 1970s, that 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 had already that that had already been taking place in his mind, and that's when providentially he got in. He was became in contact with Raymond Schwager. and so that he was. Uh, so the uh, the the main the next major work that he published was the big thing, uh, the shows cachet depuis la Fondation de man things hidden from the end of, from the beginning okay and that was actually I think the I think the
0: English title is things things hidden since the foundation of time that's Or the right. foundation of the world maybe
1: that's right that was uh that he wrote that in French uh, that stunned uh that stunned the intellectual world hmm. because that's when he laid out that you know his sense of things was, was Christian, <laughs> so he had, and actually, he had. Then, in the course of that time, had been. Well, he wasn't. He was re, well, well, it was kind of a conversion experience. He discovered that he was a that he was a Catholic Christian, and then became a, a you know a piously practicing Catholic. you know, for you no, know, for the for the rest for the rest of his life, that that stunned. The intellectual world, because uh, his first book Real et Sacre* was explaining things from anthropological and literary back- background, not using religion in a positive way. Whereas by the time he'd written that and published that, he had been realizing that what he had been discovering was uh, the, the the positive meanings.
0: And, and I think. It, now that i remember or i'm remembering now that i think he had an earlier book called deceit desire in the novel correct correct and that was all about i i forget exactly it wasn't originally called that in france um i forget what Mont, it was called originally
1: i uh, oh, Wait a minute. uh you know but it, it uh studied victor hugo the french novelist also yes, the, yes. also the uh, uh don quixote Don Don Qu- Quixote, uh, and and, and Tol- Tolstoy.
0: Yeah, and I and I remember. You're right to point out that there was. He that book was entirely literary. Then mm-hmm. he becomes anthropological in his scope, and then he becomes, even when he's anthropological, he's he's capital R religious insofar as he's thinking about. Um, Sort of ancient religious practices and ancient religious sacrifices, but then he becomes explicitly Christian at least in his theology in things hidden since the foundation of the world um,
1: uh, now he never became a theologian as such, but recognized that his work was integral to what theologians were developing mm-hmm. and and uh, early on there's a uh, an English Jesuit named Carwin who wrote a couple of books introducing recently over the last few decades, uh, Hmm. introducing, uh, but Carwin points out the, uh, well, one of the things that's characteristic of René Girard is that uh, he's resolutely interdisciplinary, uh, that he doesn't, He's not held to and sometimes seems not to respect the boundaries between the different disciplines. And that has uh, 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 enabled some scholars to turn turn him off because they could point out that while well, he's really not with it with such and such and such and such and and, and, the, and what was really going on that he's recognizing the uh, you know the interrelationships between, uh, disciplines that uh, well that are necessary to because uh, any any really human problem or issue is by its nature interdisciplinary because we are psychological and sociological and historical and uh, and and. and uh, and, and literary and, and what, uh, be, because uh, we, we we are all because a human being is uh, you can't explain a human being uh, adequately from, from just one discipline, just from psychology or just from literature or just or just from sociology or or just from educational theory or just, but all of these uh, together so, and so his willingness to uh sometimes cavalierly move move across disciplinary boundaries uh has annoyed and turned off some people
0: i heard him say in an interview once something along the lines of uh everyone likes to talk a big interdisciplinary game uh but but that he actually tries to do that yes I, i was saying earlier that i what struck me at the beginning was how anthropological he was, and how, and yes. and I was sort of, as I was reading, violence in the sacred was really blown away by the scope with which he could get me to consider the pervasiveness of uh, violence and sacrifice, yeah. and what becomes yeah. his sort of mimetic theory. Um, That's right. But but what I'm curious about from a religious and a theological perspective is for. Personally, one of the things that interested me in reading Rue Girard's works was uh, it reengaged me with a lot of the Christian symbolism, um, and it made me realize, uh, at least in Girard's argument and my interpretation of it, that a lot of the Christian symbols have this deep anthropological, Even even well, the biblical story itself seems to have course. this deep anthropological base. Of course. Right. And and I remember it dawning on me like, wow, like, you know, it, it almost reengaged me, not that I had a conversion experience like Gerard, but it certainly reengaged me um, with many aspects of, of, you know, my sort of culturally Catholic upbringing. But sometimes I wonder, it helps that Gerard himself became very Catholic. But I wonder sometimes if that sort of anthropological um, base or foundation applied to the symbolism of Christian Christianity sometimes troubles the literal interpretations um, of, of Christian sacraments. So for example, I went to a mass with my father, my dad and I went to a mass and and, um, it was the mass of Corpus Christi. So the body of Christ and the deacon gets up there and I, and at least in my experience, I'm not, you know, I'm far from the most devout Catholic. I've heard this homily before, some version of it, where I'm reminded that the Eucharist is the actual body of Christ. Yes. And I and I remember thinking as I was reading Gerard, it seems like that concept, the Eucharist, seems rife with possibility for being symbolic to you know this sort of sacrificial deliverance from a mimetic theory if that makes sense uh and and yet i wonder if that butts up against a more literal interpretation like this is the actual body of christ because my problem my problem sometimes with that is if you're going to tell a group of people that it's actually jesus then you also need to either explain why we need to eat him (laughs) Mm-hmm. Or you need to explain that there's a deep anthropological history to this symbol, and therefore it's a symbol and not actually literal. and And I'm sorry if that sounds heretical, but but I found myself thinking that as I was reading Gerard, I'm curious what you think.
1: Uh, no, you're you're right in the sense of the complexity of of, of this. and uh, <clears throat> and we don't have uh, theologians. Have not developed a unified, consensual explanation mm. for the mystery of the Eucharist. If you're Aristotelian, and and you can go then you then uh, the, the distinction between the substance and the accidents, you know, can can help you to to explain it. Uh, the uh, <clears throat> so. However, most people are not Aristotelian in that sense anymore. If you're platonically minded and what have you, then you can see that, well, the the, the spiritual meaning of it <clears throat> uh, so I mean our theology of the Eucharist then say yes, this is the body of Christ. But the is is not. What is is not what a scientist, a chemist, or a biologist would see in examining the host. The, hmm. and and uh, so, uh, well, how, how then do you explain it? I said, well, if you're. Uh, If if you're Aristotelian Thomist, you've got that easy explanation, but uh, uh, most people these days are not that. Uh, Well, how how do you explain it? Uh, it? There are many Christians. Most Christians, if you ask them to explain their understanding of the Eucharist, almost all of them would come up with something that uh, uh, an informed theologian would, would recognize is, uh, is simply off base. It doesn't mm-hmm. work, you know, it's, it's not, you no. Know. And, and that's because, well, it, it's like <clears throat> the, uh, the explanation of you no know, uh, religious truth, that the deeper you try to get into the truth, the less you're able to understand it and that's as simple as simple as the the uh, uh the, the relationship between the the, the 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 loving providence and knowledge of god and god's if you will control and if the power of god okay fine all of that and human free will now Early on, origin of Alexandria, and 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 most of the most most of the really good theolog have recognized that you're up against something that it it, that we're we're not able to explain satisfactorily, really explain satisfactorily how it can be that we have total free will. And God respects that free will, and, uh, and yet God is all-powerful and all-knowing. God knows ahead of time what we're thinking, because God... So, 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 so <clears throat> it, it's similar to trying to explain, what do we mean by the saying that the Eucharist is the body of Christ? How do do we explain that? As I said, well, uh, when people were more or less uh, dealing with a a scholastic Aristotelian-based understanding, you you could come up with an explanation that brought you closer to the mystery. But you would always get to the point where you can't explain any further. And, And, One of the interesting things is that uh, theologian, or Thomas himself, in the prologue to his commentary on the fourth book of the sentences, that's anyway, uh, he he mentions that uh, theology at its deepest, uh, the deeper it gets, the more symbolic and uh image dependent it gets mm. that that uh, that, that <clears throat> uh, the liter- you know literal understanding, it's not the physical body of Christ none of the accidents you know of you know of flesh blood, space time and what have you uh, uh, no apply, apply to it no uh, it', it uh, so and Mm. Well, and anyway, uh, when when you stop to think of it, <clears throat> there are there are practical religious truths, the theoretical religious truths. There are there are creedal statements, but on on any on on, on basically any one of them, when you when you push it to try to get an ultimate explanation, you get to the point where, well, you can't. You, you just boom. You're up against them. So, so that in a certain sense, the uh, uh, the rational atheist is correct. You can't explain God. You can't. You, know, you can't, given ultimately satisfactory full explanation of Christian faith or of religious faith, and at the same time your practical wisdom tells you, yet you can't live without that face. <laughs> so, yeah. You know.
0: When I was starting to, to, to begin to wrestle with this, this problem of reading Gerard and then going to church <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and you could imagine, you know, you're coming off of a chapter of Gerard or maybe even a whole book and suddenly you're looking at all the symbols in the church and you're thinking wow is not this fascinating you know he's sort of the lamb of god and you know the lamb of god is sort of sacrificed on behalf you know et cetera, et cetera. and i'm thinking about it and and it made me go back to certain parts of gerard like i really enjoyed um not necessarily his ancient interpretations but or why well his his mythological interpretations especially uh his consideration of of the comparison between jesus and somebody like dionysus uh, and the sort of greek tradition of sacrifice uh, where you have dionysus realizes that he's the necessary sacrifice but that sacrifices should continue and while jesus realizes you know um quite dramatically in the garden that he's a necessary sacrifice but that he's to be the last sacrifice that stops all sacrifices or that forces people to obviously we've had sacrifices since then but and scapegoats etc but he was to start to turn us um sort of inward on ourselves to realize how dependent on sacrifice we are is that can you
1: yeah that, that that sort of makes you have to when you when you speak that way too. You have to remember: uh, Did Jesus ever? You, you, yes, he did use sacrificial language. That's 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 the fascinating thing that the early Christians used the language of ritual material sacrifice to explain as the language for explaining their Christian understanding of sacrifice. Uh, uh, that's uh, uh, that's part. Well, in a sense, they had to because uh, what
0: uh,
1: what else could they have done? I mean, well,
0: I, yeah. I was going to ask you how much of of that do you think? Uh, and by that, I mean them using the early. Um, Early Christians or the authors of the Gospels, um, even Paul and whoever else might have contributed to some of Paul's letters. How much of that do you think was the result of Paul's expansion into Greek territory?
1: Oh, some of it, definitely.
0: Where they had a rich history of sacrifice in relation to Dionysus. Yeah. You know, um, I
1: mean, there was a, a richly developed uh, language and conceptuality of. Uh, of Of logical material uh, sacrifice. for example, just the language of uh, uh, epistle of the Romans chapter twelve, to be right from the beginning of the chapter. I exhort you, brothers, to offer your bodies as a spiritual sacrifice. Well, he's using the language of logike to zia which was logical meaning logike meaning well logical spiritual uh,
0: uh,
1: and but he's using it greek religious philosophy had already figured out that uh that material sacrifice is is worthless and it's meaningless. You know, the only the only sacrifice that's important that's helpful is lot is rational is you no know, is 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 ultimately ultimately ethical and and what have you, uh, but they still use the language. You know, uh, 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 uh. so <clears throat> Paul does is is aware of and uses the language of material sacrifice to try to express the spiritual meaning of Christian sacrifice, so that uh, <clears throat> the phrase logiketusia, me, me, meaning literally, logical, you know, uh, rational sacrifice, c- can often get translated in, in the Christian sense to uh, a meaning spiritual, referring to uh, not just not just to the Holy Spirit, but referring to the basic understanding of the basic material of of, of what a human being is: body, soul, spirit, and and uh, 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 so. That that's one of the uh, <laughs> one, 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 It's not a paradox. It's just simply the way things are. Uh, we we have no language. Human beings don't have a language that is capable of doing justice to the mysteries we're trying to explain and trying to live. Hmm. And, uh, you know, for example, the, uh, the way conversion often happens is an indication of that. It's usually, if you're being converted from, atheism or from non-religion to religion or or what, it's usually, or characteristically, the converting point is not a rational or a theological explanation, but the example of Christian life that you see, and they say, if, if that's what these people live by and are willing to die by, there's got to be something to that. Uh, 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 <laughs> and, and, and so, so that the, the practical, the experience, <clears throat> the experience of being Christian or the experience of someone being Christian is what is usually the, the, the basis for an actual, actual conversion. Uh, the... Uh, the the, the the intellectual discovery of it that uh uh that some people do go through like René Girard did go through an intellectual route to discovering but what he was discovering was <laughs> was already in his blood, in his feelings that you know that he did that he that he, that he, that he didn't have to invent, you know, uh what he was discovering. He said, "That's what my mother was teaching me." <laughs>
0: did, did you ever get a chance to meet René Girard? I, I oh, yes. Asked, oh, oh, yes. oh yes. Oh, you really? did. Oh yes. What was? Can you tell me what that was like? If you still have time, I'm sorry if I'm over.
1: Well, gentle, friendly, open-minded. I mean, he really was. He and he was really was a humble man. He. He had an intellectual pride, as you can recognize, but personally, uh, he, he, you know, he he was open and friendly and what have you. Because uh, uh, I do remember one lecture, it was towards the end of his life. Well, not all that, but he's still quite active. It was, I believe, a meeting that we were having in Innsbruck that he got up and started to give his lecture and he was talking French and his wife Martha was sitting beside one of the organizers and says you'll have to go up and tell him that he's talking in French (laughs) so so he didn't go up there oh she says oh excuse me (laughs) and suddenly just knows slipped into English but not not at all embarrassed or what have you or, or flustered or what is it? And know that I mean that that's quite a gaffe not to not to realize what languages you're speaking in and what have you, but <laughs> it was he said, Oh, so oh, excuse me, excuse me. It was, uh, the, the, uh, yes, uh he he was a <clears throat> And it was interesting. He he respected, he knew I was a theologian, what have you. And uh, I remember at one of our meetings, might have been a meeting in, in the Netherlands and what have you. It was at the time when uh, the Sunday at which the meeting ended, It, it usually the meeting would go you north, know, Thursday to Sunday morning. And Sunday morning would just be gathering to, 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 to disband, to, to, to disperse. So we were having a, a final mass on Sunday morning, about maybe 20 or 30 of us there. And uh, and I had noticed ahead of time, I was, I, I, I was coming from a uh, vacation where I had plenty of time where I would usually make my retreat and I'd noticed that the reading. Uh, the gospel reading for that passage Sunday included the passage that says, "I see Satan fall like lightning from the sky." And it's, oh, this! Uh, uh, let, let, let that someone's coming. It's probably probably someone with my supper. But that's all. Right. They'll just put it on the table and not not bother us anymore. Uh, uh, so. <clears throat> I had had carefully written out a a sermon that basically uh, explained what people there at the mass said, well, that's what this is all about. Uh, But the the heart of the sermon was uh, an illustration of talking so there was this man who so I said a few things in the beginning that you know sort of laid out, you know, the, alluded to, the or mentioned or pointed to the basic meaning of of, of memetic theory, and uh, and then to told a little story of of a of a, of a of a young man who was brilliant, successful, whatever, and and whatever, and I went on to describe. What it was like that, uh, uh, and and uh, was so so brilliant and successful that he was able to use people, you know, for his ends, and that that's what people were for, was for him, you know, to you know to be of use to him, and that he had uh, he had a girlfriend that uh, everyone thought that. Uh, they were a perfect match, and what have you. And here, he realized that uh, she really he began to realize that she really loved him, and she would she would die for him, and uh, and be said. Be, and apparently, there was no real affection there too. But he was also smart. He says, "Real when He says, "Hmm." He realized he was being he was being called to respond to that. And not use her. You no, know, for, for as long as it was was helpful to him, and then you know, when one no longer could be used to help him, just you no know, move on to somebody else or something else and whatever. But he said, Oh, he said, because he was smart and had been touched by her, he realized he had to respond. He said, but he knew that if he did that, he would no longer be in control. Mm he would be opening himself to become a victim. If he responded to that love with love, he was—he would literally, he, he knew, he would be exposing himself to become a victim, uh, no, to be something that could be sacrificed and, and what have you. And, uh, and and I said, and I didn't uh, do one further. He says, people all over the world, in different cultures and different religions, uh, end up often faced with that decision, whether they are going to respond to love with genuine, authentic love and allow themselves to become victims. He says, and, uh, and when they say yes, that's when Satan falls like lightning from the sky. And so basically, I had not developed that and what. So I stopped and invited someone to say a, a word or what have you. And after a brief pause, a young man stood up and said, You've just told the story of my life.
0: You told <laughs> that story?
1: I told that story. Had and then you... he's, you know, as, a, as, as the end of the homily.
0: Hmm.
1: And that's how the homily ended. It says, and when people uh, all over the world, no matter what religion or what have you, uh, say yes to that.
0: That was, that yes was it resonated with me. What a fantastic story. Yeah, it had René Gerard, I almost want to end it there because it was well, so anyway, poetic.
1: I had sent a copy of that to Gerard. And I you know, he a, wrote a book. I, I had it with that.
0: He wrote a book called, I See Satan Fall Like Lightning.
1: That's right. That's why I chose that to. That's why I chose this. As insisted that I give the homily that morning because I had spent. I was on vacation. I had time to carefully write out. Very very carefully write out the homily. So it was quite mm-hmm. effective. You know, I can. I can. You no, know, I'm a gifted writer and speaker. If you give me a little bit of time to prepare something, and uh, so uh, I I showed it to who, who was it the guy who wrote sacrifice and sacrifice uh, oh well anyway a Girardian scholar quite
0: uh, was it uh, a and, and,
1: and long-term also lunch? friend and he was he was an email contact with Girard, who wasn't at that particular meeting so i gave him uh, gave him a copy of it and he uh, he sent it to Girard, and Gerard liked it. And so she said, yes, yes, that's it, that's it, that's it, and and, uh, and 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 people were saying after the homily, that's what explains what this is all about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It. it, it uh, yeah. So, uh, in in that in that sense, uh, you know, uh, Gerard, you know, uh, no, I personally had been personally familiar with him and what have you. But it was uh, just simply because I was just one of the people who, when you would meet, you know, at, you know, at those annual meetings, he attended most of the meetings of the Colloquium on Violence and Religion. Why he was not at that one where I gave that homily, I'm not sure. You know, but in, in any case, uh, uh, his, uh, his friend had sent, sent him a copy of that. He said, yes, that's it. That's it. He was happy. He was happy. With, with that
0: what a great story well yeah. Bob father Daly I, I know your your dinner's over there so I'm not going to keep you from that I, I can't That's... tell you how much I appreciate you taking this time and, and I really enjoyed the conversation
1: okay so Kevin God bless you and thank you for this conversation too this you no, know, is a you came out of the blue and said oh okay we've got to do we've got to we've got to respond to this <laughs> so so God well, bless you Kevin. Yeah,
0: and I'll be in contact. I'll send you a version of the episode if, if you happen to be interested in maybe listening back to it. Don't, feel free, feel no pressure to do that, but if you think of anybody who I, who I might be interested in speaking to, feel free to send those names over via email. I would I would be happy to look into that. Uh, so well,
1: the the person who was probably well the one or two most brilliant theologians uh, Bob uh, to to use Gerard Gerard's material, Robert Doran D O R I N, a Jesuit, uh, just died recently, about about a month ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's why I have this this sort of in mind, but I do remember he was he was one of those. Uh, the interesting thing is uh, Bob Doran was primarily a Lonigan scholar. I don't know whether you have ever heard of Bernard Lonigan. He was one of the great theoreticians, you know, theological theoreticians uh, that, uh, so much so that uh, like even secular culture recognized him because he was the cover person of a uh, Time Magazine
0: mm-hmm. once. On, no, I'm not familiar.
1: Yeah. Bernard J.F. Lonergan uh,
0: mm-hmm.
1: wrote uh, Insight, a study of human understanding and method in theology. And uh, those were his two main works and a number of articles, but but basically became, you know, one of the theologians that people try to... He, They recently, the University of Toronto recently published uh, a, a critical edition of his works, 25 volumes, mm-hmm. and Bob Doran was the main editor to see that through, and basically uh, the anyway bless you bless you kevin god bless and keep in touch i
0: i will enjoy your dinner
1: thank you god bless good night now let's see what do i just just have to shut this down it takes care of itself when i shut it i guess
0: you know if you hit end uh and you 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 know what i can end it in a second here so as soon as
1: that took care of it all right god bless bye-bye